Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a podcast series presented each year by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, the Gotham Center's director. And this year, because COVID-19 robbed us of the many spaces normally open to the public each fall by this wonderful event, we decided on something a little different. Because we're all stuck at home instead of traipsing around this city we love, this season of Sights and Sounds focuses on locations that can't be visited anyway. Places that are long gone, that were nonetheless of great importance to New York's history. We're calling it Lost NYC. In this episode, Sharon Zukin talks about B. Altman's, the famous department store that for many decades occupied the building in Midtown that is home to the Gotham Center and the Graduate School of New York City's Public University, CUNY. Designed by the architects who built the St. Regis Hotel and the J.P. Morgan Bank, this imposing limestone palazzo at 365 Fifth Avenue takes up an entire city block and is a Beaux-Arts icon meant to impress. The department store that occupied its eight floors, 12 on the Madison Avenue side, was also designed to seduce the senses. Emerging from that period in history when America became a consumer economy, B. Altman's was an emporium for the new, the stylish, and the luxurious. Like the marble palaces of Bon Marché in Paris, or Suffrages in London, it made shopping a central experience of life in New York City, and by extension, a core experience of modern American culture. Here, Zukin, the author of Point of Purchase, How Shopping Changed American Culture, talks about why this building's gorgeous exterior is really a window onto that pivotal time in our history. To hear the rest of this series, exploring New York City's most important historical sites and organizations, visit us at GothamCenter.org or find us wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm a professor at the Graduate School of the City University of New York. If you want to come to my office after the COVID-19 pandemic, you'll find me at 365 Fifth Avenue, diagonally across the street from the Empire State Building. That building is an international icon, instantly recognized and endlessly visited by people from around the world. But our building is famous too. In fact, for New Yorkers of a certain age, it's more famous. Our building is a classically striking white limestone palazzo that takes up the whole block from 34th to 35th Street and 5th to Madison Avenue. It's an imposing structure that was built to impress and looks as if it belongs in the Medici's Florence, designed in the Neo-Renaissance style popular with New York's upper-class families and their architects at the turn of the 20th century. The architects who designed our building, Trowbridge and Livingston, were in that group, with firms like Carrere and Hastings, who designed the main branch of the New York Public Library, and Charles McKim of McKim, Mead and White, who designed the old Pennsylvania station. They all shared a Beaux-Arts education and a Paris connection. The limestone on our building's facade was, not coincidentally, imported from France. Trowbridge and Livingston moved easily between designing banks in Wall Street, residences on the Upper East Side, and public buildings like the St. Regis Hotel. You can easily imagine Edith Wharton's society ladies waiting for their carriages in front of the Grand Portico at our building's main entrance, or women like Mrs. Caroline Astor, 
the dowager of that family dynasty, whose brownstone mansion once stood where the Empire State Building is now. Our building is beautifully symmetrical across the facade, but lopsided on top, eight stories high on the Fifth Avenue side, built in 1906, and 12 on the Madison Avenue part, added a few years later. That this building still exists and has looked the same for more than a hundred years is due to the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission. They designated it both an architectural and a historic landmark in 1985. Yet most people who pass by do not know that this beautiful building used to be a department store. Only older New Yorkers would even recognize that store's name, B. Altman. Many younger New Yorkers may not even know what a department store is. But if you've seen the HBO comedy series The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you've actually seen B. Altman. In season two, the main character works at B. Altman as a perfume counter sales clerk on the first floor before she's demoted to a job in the basement where she is part of a large group of female switchboard operators who answer telephone calls and route them to the proper department, furniture, say, or lingerie. So, if you have watched this popular show, you have seen the building, at least from the outside. The interiors were filmed at a former bank, now a cultural center, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. A key scene was shot on location outside the building to show B. Altman's elaborate winter holiday decorations in the big plate glass display windows that still dominate the building's facade on all four sides. This window on 34th Street is decorated with snowflakes and mannequins of children in their pajamas peeking at Santa Claus. He is leaving them their Christmas presents, presents that you could surely buy inside B. Altman. But let's walk around the corner to the Fifth Avenue side of the building. There we can admire the eight ionic columns, two stories tall, that divide the facade into nine large bays. You see how the architects formed a classical symmetry. Three central bays form the main entrance's grand portico, marked by Art Nouveau canopies of metal and glass. Each canopy is set over a pair of tall, heavy wooden and glass doors a few steps up from the sidewalk. These canopies always remind me of the elegant glass and iron signs that say Metropolitan in fancy script that survive outside some metro stations in Paris that were also built in the early 1900s. Here, the three central canopies emphasize the symmetry of the facade for they are flanked on either side by three bays of huge plate glass windows. From 1906 until B. Altman closed in 1989, all the windows were carefully arranged to show the latest fashions and accessories. Now the windows on one side of the entrance show the Graduate Center's art gallery, while the windows on the other side look into our library. From the street, though, you cannot see the few original details of the interior that have been preserved. My favorites are the glass-enclosed elevator with dark wooden doors and the white marble staircase up to the second floor. As the plate glass windows suggest, glass and light, color and movement created the experience of the department store. Not only in this building, but at Macy's, Lord & Taylor, and Saks Fifth Avenue in New York, 
and the slightly older Beaumarchais in Paris, Selfridges in London, and similar marble palaces in other metropolitan centers. The displays in the windows and inside these stores dramatized abundance and innovation and showed shoppers how to live as modern consumers. Fashion shows taught people how to wear fur coats and bridal gowns. Model rooms suggested that every living room really needs a cocktail table and an oriental rug. Long before Amazon and decades before the shopping mall, department stores embodied the emerging technology of the consumer economy. They made shopping a core experience of modern culture and a central experience of New York City. The department store, in the words of the historian William Leach, helped to create a new, powerful universe of consumer enticements. Together with the factory and its more sinister form, the sweatshop, you could say that the department store created modern capitalism by joining mass production and mass consumption. It was more than an emporium where you could buy every kind of modern product. The department store placed the desire for the new, the stylish, and the luxurious at the very center of great cities. Like e-commerce websites in our time, it democratized desire, embedding shopping in our very consciousness as a preoccupation and even an entitlement. From the beginning, as soon as you entered a department store, your senses were caressed by colorful silk scarves and exotically fragrant perfumes. In the 1910s, B. Altman's first-floor directory listed silks and velvets, colored and white dress goods, laces, embroideries, and trimmings, all for affluent women shoppers to buy and take to their tailors for custom-made new clothes. Men's clothing was sold on the first floor, as in the few surviving department stores today, because it was assumed that men did not like to shop and needed to get in and out of the store quickly. In those days, B. Altman catered to both a middle-class and an upper-class clientele. The store's directory listed women's French and American underwear on the second floor, as well as house dresses, aprons, maids' uniforms and caps, and nurses' uniforms, along with boys' clothing and furnishings. Women's writing and restrooms were on the fifth floor, as were the public telephones, executive offices, and Oriental, European, and American rugs. On the first floor, shoppers could buy newfangled products like cameras and order traditional ones like engraved stationery for personal correspondence. As late as the 1980s, B. Altman's last decade in business, the hierarchical ordering of genders and goods remained unchanged, but all the clothing was ready-made, and new signifiers of status had joined the mix. Besides perfumes, hats, menswear, and cameras, the first floor now featured a department for collectibles, a blouse bazaar, and both fine and better jewelry. The second floor still offered shoes and underwear, now called lingerie, but there were no maids' uniforms, and the store had added a department dedicated to a specific brand of shoe, Etienne Nier, and a Charles of the Ritz branded beauty salon. Individual departments for other designers, Jeffrey Bean, Versace, 
were on the third floor, with sheets, towels, and dishes on the floor above them, and moderate-priced women's dresses, coats, and sportswear up on six. That's where my office is today. My friend Bev worked on the sixth floor in 1960, when she was a first-year student at Queens College. She was what they called a Saturday extra, a part-timer with little or no experience who was willing to work for $1 an hour. Unlike the full-time saleswomen, Saturday extras did not earn a commission on the dresses they sold. So Bev would travel for an hour on the subway to get to the store by 9 a.m., serve customers, sending their cash payments or store credit card upstairs to the central office by pneumatic tube, and move dresses back and forth from the fitting rooms to the racks until the store closed at 6 p.m. Then she would work for another hour cashing out, reconciling the records of her sales and the receipts, all to earn the grand sum of eight or ten dollars for the day. She laughs when she remembers how well-dressed the customers were. Even though they came to the sixth floor for lower-priced dresses, the women shoppers brought poodles wearing diamond doggy necklaces. The dogs wore little red booties on their paws if it was raining. These ladies who lunched used to enjoy chicken or tuna fish salad in Charleston Garden, the genteel restaurant on the top floor that Altman's, like most department stores, offered to keep shoppers happy. They would bring children or grandchildren for a treat on birthdays and back-to-school shopping expeditions. The restaurant was noted for its large mural on one wall of the full facade of a Charleston-style mansion in Gone with the Wind style, with a woman in a maid's or server's uniform and cap bringing a tray out of the house. I don't know if shoppers of color felt comfortable here, or if there were many of them at B. Altman at that time. Bev could only afford to eat at Charleston Garden once. The full-time saleswomen weren't very friendly to her either. They wore tailored black dresses, practically a uniform, looking very much like the young working-class women in the first generation of retail workers 100 years earlier. On their feet were laced black oxfords, which Bev called old ladies' shoes, the better to stand all day serving customers. These saleswomen probably resented Bev because every dress she sold took a commission away from them, and their salaries surely were not very high. Yet Benjamin Altman, the store's eponymous founder, had a reputation for treating his employees well, at least better than they would have fared as factory workers or at other retail stores. Altman's, the historian Gene Abrams writes, was the first large-scale retail establishment in New York to offer low-cost subsidized meals to employees in their own cafeteria and provide them with their own restrooms. The store also closed on Saturdays during the summer months and operated under shortened business hours on Saturdays during the rest of the year, when the normal work week was over 60 hours at other stores. There was an infirmary with seven beds, a doctor, and two nurses to care for sick employees and customers in an emergency. Even more unusual was a classroom where younger employees could take lessons in reading, writing, and arithmetic. 
Today, scholars call this welfare capitalism and compare it to the kinds of benefits that Amazon or Walmart offer workers to persuade them not to form a union. Employers like B. Altman had the same motivation, but as the child of German immigrants, he also brought with him a tradition of German paternalism, which imagined employers as the stern father figure in what some companies still occasionally term a family. Indeed, Altman reminds me of the Lehman Brothers, whom I recently saw portrayed in the play The Lehman Trilogy. Like other mid-19th century German, especially German-Jewish immigrants, Altman and the Lehmans came from shopkeeper families and started out as dry goods or fabrics merchants. The Lehmans eventually founded an investment bank. Altman and his contemporaries, the Strauss brothers who owned Macy's and Lyman and Joseph Bloomingdale, became merchant princes of New York. Altman was said to be a reticent man, passionate only about his art collection, serious about pursuing the best pieces, including several of Rembrandt's paintings, for the best price. When he died, no newspaper could find a photograph to publish with his obituary. But he was clever to start buying real estate at 34th and 5th before 1900, at a time when the major stores, including his, were still clustered on 6th Avenue and on Broadway between 14th and 23rd Streets. Altman foresaw that 5th Avenue would become Manhattan's main shopping promenade. After he moved here, his store was joined by Tiffany at 36th Street, Lord and Taylor at 39th Street, and a host of other elegant stores that catered to affluent shoppers. To blend in with the high-class surroundings, B. Altman did not put his name on the store until years later, and even then, it was very discreetly written in small script on the front corner of the facade. By the 1970s, Altman's ethic of offering well-made goods at decent prices could not compete with the trendiness of Bloomingdale's, the snob appeal of Bergdorf's, or the youth culture of boutiques. The store began to fade. In the 1980s, the business was bought by an Australian real estate investor who ran it into bankruptcy. When my friend Susie moved to New York in 1986, she considered B. Altman a B-level store, but she would shop there for oversized men's shirts and boyfriend's jackets that looked like outfits by avant-garde Japanese designers. Like other New Yorkers, she was sad when they went out of business in 1989. I could buy good things there, she said, at a price I could afford. Consider that a requiem for an older age and a classical form of capitalism. The building is still here to remind us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of the series, available wherever you get podcasts. And visit us at GothamCenter.org to learn more about all of our programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. Post-production for this season was provided by Garrett Tiedemann for Citizen Race Car. Special thanks to Dina Ecker and Jessica George for their help in the making of this episode. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Be safe, everyone.